The journey into the unknown. As we look a bit closer, this journey that Mary and Joseph made to Bethlehem, it must have been quite nerve-wracking for them. It must have been seen very uncertain as they traveled into unfamiliar territory. Although for Mary, it maybe was partly a similar journey to the one she made in order to visit Elizabeth, the same uh, area they were going to. But what we see from this passage, while it was a journey into the unknown and a very new part of their lives, this passage teaches us there's a lot of certainty that comes here. And that shouldn't surprise us. You need to remember what Luke's gospel was all about. We're thinking about this wee verse this morning. Luke says, he wrote his gospel that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In a world where so much seems uncertain, we have the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, inflation, the cost of living, strike after strike we read about on the, on the television, the Northern Ireland Protocol, COVID-19, Strep A, and there are many other worrying things in our lives. But it is wonderful that in regards to some of the most important things of all, things which are not just a matter of life and death, but even more important than that, we can have absolute certainty. So let's look at this passage in Luke's gospel to find some certainty here this evening. The first certainty is the certainty of Jesus' birth. Why is there this reference to Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor in verse 1, and Quirinius, who would be the Roman governor of Syria, of which Judea was the part, mentioned in verse 2. Well, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius are people whose existence are well documented in ancient history, particularly Caesar Augustus. He is probably the greatest of all the Roman emperors. He reigned for over 40 years. He brought great reform peace, expansion, and prosperity to the Roman Empire until his death when he was in his early 70s in 14 AD. There are a number of reasons why Caesar Augustus and Quirinius are mentioned here, but I think the most important is to put the birth of Jesus in its historical setting. This is to show that the story of Jesus is not just a a fairy tale which might or might not have happened. It's not a parable, just a story to get a meaning from, but rather it's the story of a real person who lived at a real time in a real place in this real world. The story of Jesus is a story not of a God who remains distant from this world, but the story of Jesus is the story of the God who enters this world who lives, who dies, who rises from the dead in order to bring chains and salvation to the people of this world. Christianity, at the very heart of it, has that important little word, faith. But it is never blind faith. It's not just a matter of crossing your fingers and hoping it's right. It is faith based on well-documented historical evidence. Faith based on the evidence about the life, the death, the resurrection of this person, Jesus. This person, Jesus, who was born, 
and lived in Israel 2,000 years ago. Look who wrote this gospel. He was a well-educated man. He was a, a doctor. He speaks at the beginning of this gospel how he has carefully investigated these events. He's spoken to the eyewitnesses so that people could have a very reliable account for themselves to read. He writes this gospel so that people will have certainty about the existence, the person of Jesus, and what Jesus has done in order to save us. If you're someone tonight who is struggling to believe this message of Jesus, or maybe you're a Christian tonight who have doubts which trouble you, one of the best things you can do is to read one of the Gospels, even Luke's Gospel here. Because by reading these Gospels, we can have certainty. God can bring that certainty to us about Jesus, about His birth, His existence, His work of salvation. So that's the first thing we see, the certainty of Jesus' birth, an event that really happened. And then we have the certainty of Jesus' kingship in verses 3 to 6. The big emphasis in this passage is about Mary and Joseph going from Nazareth to Bethlehem in time for Jesus to be born there. This was very important to show that Jesus was from the family of Bethlehem, from the family line of King David. It says there in verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he is of the house and lineage, that's the family line of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And so, the certainty that has been emphasized here is that Jesus is of the family of David. Think of this important fact. There on a register in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, on an official legal government document would be written the name Joseph of Nazareth, Jesus' legal father. And indeed, for many years, as long as that document existed, people could have come and looked at and seen that Jesus was from Joseph, who was of the family of David. This was so important because the Old Testament made it clear that there would come a Messiah a great king who would rescue his people, who would be a descendant of King David, and who would be born in Bethlehem in the same way that King David was born there. Probably the most famous reference of all, you'll know, Micah 5 and verse 2, which says, But you, Bethlehem and Rapha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That was written by the prophet Micah, by the inspiration of God, over 700 years before Jesus would be born. God had decreed that His Messiah, the great King, would be born in Bethlehem. In John chapter 7, we read a debate among the, the Jewish people. Some were saying that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah, because of the evidence they saw of His wonderful miracles and His teaching with authority. 
But others were arguing, no, he couldn't be the Christ because the Christ has to come from Bethlehem and this Jesus has come from Nazareth in Galilee. Their knowledge of Micah 5 caused them to insist that the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem. But they failed to take into account other parts of the Bible, including Isaiah chapter 9, which says this, which speaks of Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And so, there's that prophecy from Micah, which says that indeed uh, there will come this great king born in Bethlehem. And now it says in Isaiah that this great light from the Messiah would be seen in Galilee in the north. Now, the answer to this apparent dilemma of a Messiah who would be linked both to Bethlehem in the south and Galilee to the north is Jesus, the one who would be born in Bethlehem from the line of David, but the one who would be brought up in Nazareth in Galilee in the north. You know, it's interesting how this chapter begins. It begins with the decree from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, as I said, was one of the most successful, one of the most powerful Roman emperors who ever existed. Caesar Augustus, though, also promoted the idea and practice that the emperor should be worshipped as a god, as divine. He, his favorite phrase to be addressed was, Lord and God. There's a man who had a high opinion of himself. That's how you want people to address him, Lord and God. Now, this mighty emperor Augustus, he might have considered himself divine. He may have seen that he had great influence and power, and with that power, he uttered this decree that all people were to be counted in this census. But the reality was that he was only the true God's little pawn being used by God so that Mary and Joseph would be, have to go to Bethlehem and so that Jesus would be born there to prove that this Jesus is the rightful King of Israel. It says there in verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The, the King James puts it, in a very good way. The King James Bible says, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, or the day was fulfilled. This is saying this was the time of God's wonderful and perfect plan to be worked out. His perfect timing was just as Mary and Joseph come to Bethlehem, the city of David, the rightful king of Israel would be born at this time. For all that Augustus boasted, the truth is that a much greater king was now coming on the scene. God has uttered His decree. His decree was being worked out. His plan was happening. His plan to bring salvation for His people through His Son coming. His Son who would be, as to His human nature, a descendant of David the rightful king of Israel, the rightful king of the whole world. The God-man had come 
and come to do this wonderful work of salvation to bring hope, a hope for which millions upon millions of people in the centuries which would follow have grasped hold of. Certain hope for those who acknowledge Jesus as Savior and rightful King. For those who will acknowledge Jesus as their Savior and their King. The certainty here is the kingship of Jesus. I wonder, have you come to acknowledge Jesus as the true King of Israel, the true King of this world? And most importantly, have you come to acknowledge this Jesus as your King, your Lord? This is what Jesus not only asks of you, this is what Jesus demands of you. This is His right. He is the King of all. He is the Son of God who made this world. He is the one who demands that you surrender before Him, that you give your life to Him, embracing Him as the King of your life. You know, given that call, given that command, given that demand from King Jesus, some people think, oh, I'll give him something. I'll give him a wee bit of my time. I'll give him a wee bit of my money. I'll go to church. No good. No good. He doesn't want a wee bit of you. He wants you. He demands you embrace him as your king. So we have the certainty of Jesus' birth. We have the certainty of Jesus' kingship. And then thirdly, we come to the reason why this is the king we have to embrace. We come to the certainty of Jesus' humility. Look there at verse 7. It says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Every phrase in that verse is, is just bursting with tremendous truth about Jesus and what He has come to do. Let's think of these phrases in turn. First of all, her firstborn son. Can you think of how a place in the Bible where the firstborn sons are spoken of a lot? We need to go back to the story of the Exodus when the children of Israel were rescued from their slavery in Egypt. They were rescued when God's angel of death came to kill the firstborn sons in every family among the Egyptians. But the Israelites, with the blood of a lamb placed on their doorposts and the, their doorheads, their firstborn sons were spared. Later on, whenever a son was born in Israel, an offering had to be made in order for that son to be redeemed. Whenever an animal was the firstborn, that animal was sacrificed. And so this 
practice of redeeming the firstborn sons and the practice of sacrificing the firstborn animals was pointing back to the deliverance from Egypt when the firstborn sons of the Egyptians were killed. But the practice of redeeming the firstborn sons and sacrificing the firstborn animals was also pointing forward to the firstborn who would come one day into this world to be sacrificed for the sin of His people. And so when it says, Mary give birth to her firstborn son, this is the beginning of the fulfillment which all of that killing of the firstborn or the redeeming of the firstborns was pointing forward to. This would be the firstborn son of Israel who couldn't be redeemed. Remember, all the firstborn sons of Israel were redeemed up to that point, but this is one who couldn't be redeemed because he would go to the cross to be the redeemer of his people. God would sacrifice his firstborn, his only son, for sinners like you and me, her firstborn son. Secondly, wrapped in swaddling cloths. The picture here is a baby whose whole body, including arms and legs, were swaddled with these pieces of cloth so they couldn't move, basically looked like an Egyptian mummy. Now, this would have been very normal practice for a baby in those days. So, why did Luke even bother to mention it? Well, it's to bring home to us the wonder of what is happening here. Here we have the Almighty God, the all-powerful Creator of the world, allowing Himself to become a helpless, unbound, tiny little baby. Here we see the great humility, the great condescension of the incarnation, of the Word becoming flesh, of God taking on human form and coming in such a vulnerable way. But the picture surely given here by Luke of this bound baby is because as a man, the Son of God would allow Himself to be bound as a prisoner when he was arrested. Allow himself to be bound so that he could be beaten. Allow himself to be bound as he was whipped. Allow himself to be bound by nails to the cross of Calvary, to die there for the sin of his people. And what would happen after he died? He would be taken off that cross he would be bound by linen cloth for his grave clothes. The God of creation, the God whose power cannot be measured, allows himself to be bound for the salvation of his people. Then what happens next? He is led in a manger. He was led in an animal feeding truck. This king, this son of God, this son of heaven, is born and placed among the most lowly of animals. Oh, how amazing. Oh, how 
wonderful is his humility. But doesn't that point just to the very nature of his life, the nature of his ministry, of how he would be described as a friend of sinners, a friend of the outcasts, a friend of the lowest of the low, a man who would come to forgive those caught in adultery, a man who had come to call treacherous tax collectors and thieves. We think of how even in his death he would be crucified and placed between two criminals, two men who were thieves and possibly also murderers. Being laid in a manger among the animals speaks of Jesus coming down to the lowest of all places. Sometimes people who are outside the church see people in the church as being very proud. See people in the church who see themselves as superior, who see themselves as being extra good. Now, I can't deny sometimes we have people in the churches who are proud and stuck up and, and full of that and who forgive us. But the true members of the church are members of the church not because we think we're good. We're members of this church. We're Christians because we know we're bad. We know we're not good enough, but we know that Jesus has come down to the lowest of the low for sinners like us. It's not a question of, are you good enough to be a Christian? Do you realize that you are so bad? Do you understand that you're bad enough that you need a Savior? You've rebelled against this Savior. You've gone your own way. You know that in your thoughts, your words, and your actions. But the good news, Jesus hasn't come for the good. He's come for the lowly, for the bad, which is all of us. And the final thing is, there is no place for them in the inn. Here comes the King of Kings. Here's the God of the universe, and there's no room for him in the end, so he's cast out to be born among the animals. Again, a picture pointing to Jesus' death. Jesus, do you remember where he was crucified? He wasn't crucified in Jerusalem. He was cast out of Jerusalem to be crucified outside of the city, outside the city wall. He was cast out of the camp of God's people. There's a lovely picture in the Old Testament of a scapegoat. This is when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, and a goat would be brought, and the hands of the high priest would be placed on the goat's head as a symbol that this goat was taking upon it the sin of the people. And then it was cast out cast out into the wilderness, cast out from the camp of God's people, cast out to die. The Jesus for whom there's no room is the Jesus who was cast out so that sinners could be brought in and rescued. Well, what do you need to do in order to be brought in? 
In a sense, through faith, you need to do what that high priest did. You need to place your hands on the head of Jesus by faith and say to Jesus, be my scapegoat. I accept that you're a cast out. Through you being cast out, save me, rescue me, cleanse me, bring me to God and salvation. Let us just recap of what we have thought about here tonight. Mary and Joseph were taking this journey into the unknown. But here are three great certainties that we can build our lives upon. No matter what's happening around us, here are three wonderful rocks to be anchored in. First of all, the certainty of Jesus' birth. A real event 2,000 years ago. God has come among us. Emmanuel, He has come among us to rescue us. The certainty of Jesus' kingship. He's the rightful king of Israel. He's the rightful king of the world. He's the rightful king of you and calls you to repent and to surrender. And the certainty of Jesus' humility, the firstborn who was bound, who came among the lowest, who was cast out, no room for, for the salvation of his people. May this Christmas time, may you know the certainty that comes from one person, the Jesus who was born in Bethlehem.